What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Nogueira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different completist guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're gonna do 75 sets of these. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, it's funny, and I'll tell you why. Right? And I, <laughs> that's a good one, man. No, I'll tell you why. <laughs> Look. Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from death row be sure to follow us on instagram and facebook but more importantly yes we have patreon which means you can support the show and all the hard work that we're doing here find us at patreon.com slash death row diaries by subscribing you'll get access to exclusive content and merchandise just for signing up we look forward to it. On to the show. Okay, welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm Willie May And tonight we're talking about the next person in line that was executed at San Quentin State Prison, where all of California's executions have taken place in recent years. This guy is an interesting case. I'd never heard of him. I don't know what to make of him. He seems weird. His name is Robert Lee Macy, right? Yeah, he's like the the most uninteresting guy in the world to really peel back the layers and you see what this guy's about. I mean, his name, Robert Lee Macy or Massey, uh, he's a throwback. You know, the first time I saw this guy, he looked like he came out of 1961. And he is, if you can picture the Cleaver family and leave it to Beaver, if they had a creepy uncle, Robert Lee Macy would be that uncle. His hair is part to the side, a little flipless on the front. He weighs 135 to 140 pounds on a good day. And he's just a complete throwback. So yeah, this guy is incredibly unspectacular. But then when you start looking at his life, I think you just have to shake your head. Either this guy is the luckiest guy in the world or the unluckiest guy in the world. He's sentenced to death three separate times. I mean, that's never happened before. And he's actually on death row in the 60s. And when the uh, United States Supreme Court throws out the death penalty as being cruel and unusual punishment, this guy gets life in prison. And he paroles in 1978. They let him out. And the, six months later, he's back in prison. He's on death row again for another murder. So I think we should start there and just start looking at this guy's life, how it started, and how he became the guy that ended up dying in the, the, um, not the gas chamber, of course, the lethal injection chamber. That doesn't sound as romantic, does it? No, maybe we need a new new term for that. But it's still in the gas chamber, right? They just, they just uh, do it by lethal injection. Yeah, it, yeah, it's actually the same chamber, but yeah, they kind of spruced it up a little bit so it looks not as, um, as intimidating or, or, I don't know, Darkonian. Yeah, it, it looked like something out of a Stanley Kubrick film before. Like, um, yeah, I don't know where we start with him. Do you want to start with his early life or with his criminal life? Yeah, I, I think it's. Yeah, I think the audience would like to hear about where this guy came from, and it's 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 a really kind of a sad story. But at the same token, it's pretty much expected. 
you know, at the age of six years old, his mother places him in foster care, and he goes from home to home. He's committing these petty crimes. I mean, in those days, it's really nothing. It's a kid. He's, he's rebelling against the system. He feels left out. I mean, imagine that. Six years old, you're placed in a home with someone that's not your mother or your father, and you're you're passed around. I mean, that must feel horrible. I have never had to experience that, but I'm sure it's not good. And by age 11, he's in a juvenile detention facility, and it just this part really makes me upset because he's gang raped repeatedly by older boys. He's an 11 year old little boy. He's small. He's frail. He's sickly. And unfortunately, in those places, that's what happens. You know, you have these kids that are, you know. They're looking to be the macho kid, the big dog in the block, and they feel that, in some cases, or most cases, that rape is the way to establish your dominance. So this kid is raped repeatedly at the age of 11. Obviously, that's going to affect someone pretty drastically. And then he he, he never really has a, a period of normalcy, does he? No, because the following year at age 12... He's put on a Virginia chain gang. I'm going to repeat that. Age 12, he plays on a Virginia chain gang where he is pushed to his limits. He's working in the rain and the sun and the cold, and he's digging trenches. And in one instance, in those days, one of the children just dies of heat exhaustion, and the, the wardens or the people in charge basically just tell the kids to dig a bigger hole and dump the kid in there and they just keep going. And you can imagine what kind of impact that had on a 12-year-old child. So, I mean, they kind of lose track of him, but in 1965, he emerges again. And this is where things go really south for this guy. Um, it's January the 7th. 1965, and this gentleman named Franklin Bauer gets home in West Covina, California, and he gets out of his car, and Robert Macy approaches him, and out of nowhere, hits him in the mouth with the butt of his rifle and demands his money, at which point uh, the victim gives him his wallet and his coin purse, and you know how far back this was if you're talking about a coin purse. And then Macy, out of nowhere, just shoots him, grazing the side of his head, and he leaves. A few hours later, he the same night, he approaches a gentleman and his wife, Morris and Mildred Weiss, and they had just arrived from being out, and as soon as Mildred steps out of her car, Right there is Macy, and he comes up to her, and he shoots her dead. And he gets in his car, and he leaves again. The motive is robbery. So it's like he went from nobody to somebody in a few hours. Again, that same night, it's just past midnight. He enters a bar in Baldwin Park, California, pulls out a rifle, yells, this is a stick-up, and robs the place. So one night, three instances, he is, has no remorse. He's just, he's on a business spree, if you want to call it that. And a few days later on January the 11th, he meets a guy named Frank Patty at MacArthur Park. And they agree to go to Patty's apartment, his hotel. But once inside, here we are again. Massey pulls a gun, demands money, and he asks the guy or tells the guy to take off his clothes, at which time Frank Patty attacks Macy, attempting to take the gun from him, and Macy shoots him three times. Twice in the stomach and one in the neck. And it's like this guy has an off button and a turn off on button. Once it's on, this guy doesn't stop. Yeah, and so of all these incidents, for all we know, these are his only, you know, incidents during this time period, the only crimes he's committing. And 
three of the three go off horribly. Yeah, it's your immediate thing. It's your response to any kind of disrespect or, you know, if you're doing something that he did not tell you, his answer is to shoot you. So only a few days later, he's arrested for the assault on Frank Patty. Obviously, he knew this guy. And right away, like clockwork, he confesses to all previous crimes. Four counts of robbery, one count of attempted murder, one count of murder of Mildred Weiss, and for which he is then given the death penalty. He arrives at St. Quentin a few days after the sentence, and he remains on death row for the next seven years. And as I explained earlier, in 1972, the United States Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional under Furman. And Macy gets life in prison. Back in those days, there were, there were prior to there being a 25 years to life, 15 years to life, manslaughter as degrees for murder, first, second, and third. Um, so when he gets life, back then people would get five years to life, 15 years to life, I'm sorry, five years to life, seven years to life. He was on death row with Charles Manson, who also received life at this point. The distinction is that Charles Manson is a freaking lunatic, and the media have portrayed him a certain way, and he can help himself, but every time he opens his mouth, he stuck his foot in it. This guy is rather quiet. He does everything you ask him to in prison. He's a model prisoner. Um, but he has some runs in, some runs during that time, 1972 to 1970, while he's on, he runs into some trouble, which we'll talk about later, but he goes to parole in 1978 because he's done everything asked of him. He's let out. And of course that was a deadly mistake. I don't know how many people there were to escape you know, death row, he was older than most of the people that we discussed by the time that you encountered him. Couldn't get a handle on, I know his early life was really uh, kind of tragic. Couldn't tell if he's completely crazy or just a little off or what's going on with him. No, it's really interesting you ask that because I knew him. And the first time I saw him on the yard, um, as I say, he's a throwback to the 60s. He looks like he came out of 1961. Haircut, mannerisms, very quiet, very observant. Didn't make a whole lot of noise. But he wasn't lunatic crazy. And what I mean by that is he bathed, he took care of himself, his appearance. If you asked him something, he'd answer your question. What he had wrong with him if you want to call it wrong with him, is that even prison psychologists, um, they diagnosed him with a disorder, and they, I'm quoting them, tantamount to an acute schizophrenic reaction to things. That's how he responds to things. His perspective is also crooked, or it's, it's not based in reality. He will talk to you like a normal person. If you ask him what color the sky is, he'll tell you. He'll tell you. If you ask him what day it is, he'll tell you. And if you ask him about anything, about something you want to use, he can answer your questions. But when he starts to argue a point or he has a particular point of view, no matter how obscure it is, he argues that point intelligently, mind you, but it's completely based on unrealistic and and just falsehoods, falsehoods. So that's the kind of guy that he was. Um, and yeah, you're right. When he got, to, he has 60 seconds remaining. When he got to death row, when I met him, he was an older guy. There were several older guys here, but what made him so distinctive from everybody is he was on death row prior to this death row being uh, enacted or activated. So the rumor was, hey, this guy was on death row before. And he came back, and there was, oh, there was all kinds of rumors as to why he was here a second time. And those went from being a serial killer, and all of them were on Let me call back. 
Yeah. So I guess conventional wisdom might dictate that once you've already been to death row, and as we'll find out, he really has an axe to grind with being on death row. He's like the most vocal person, not about the death penalty, but just about like the conditions. He just doesn't like it. So it's really strange that he would end up going back again. <laughs> Yeah, and that kind of tells you where his mind's at. But yeah, while he was here, he can't, he's very vocal. And as I said, just because a person is intelligent doesn't mean that they're sane. He was a, a fairly intelligent guy. He wrote articles. He, uh, he spoke to a number of different people, influential people in the community about death penalty, about double jeopardy. He had, uh, he had theories about law regarding double jeopardy. It just, he was not a dumb guy, but his mind was warped. Um, so we should actually talk about why he was on death row the second time. And it really isn't much time after he paroles. It's only a few months. And he seems to like the month of January. That seems to be, if he was, if he was a serial killer, his name would be the January man. Because he murdered in January 1965. And here we are in 1979, January the 3rd, and he's at it again. So he's on parole for murder. He escaped the death penalty. And he enters the Miraloma liquor store in San Francisco. Um, he had been scoping out the joint. He'd come in and he'd left a couple of times, witness said. And then a witness said that she entered the store and she found Macy and the store owner, a guy by the name of Boris Madoff or Dumas, and they were face-to-face. And the person thinking that Macy was a customer just said hello to the owner, at which point he hands Macy a bag of money, which Macy Macy put immediately into his pocket of his jacket, and the store owner was heard to have said out loud, a guy can't make a living anymore. And then Macy turned and attempted to leave the store. And this is when things go south. The store owner goes after him. And they begin to wrestle. And here we are again. Any type of disrespect, anything that goes out of the ordinary from what he, the rules he has set during these robberies, his first reaction is to pull a gun. And that's what he does. He pulls his gun and he shoots the store owner in the neck, killing him, and a stray bullet hits an employee named Chuck Paris in the leg, and Macy leaves. Um, it doesn't take long. The following day, because someone witnessed the car he was driving, and they wrote down a partial plate, they pull him over. And right away, he gets out of the car, they search him, they find a fully loaded Ruger, 357, in his, on his body. A, they also find a, well, I mean, these guns, I mean, I don't know where he got these things from. This is another thing. He's a throwback. But he has a Mauser 380 automatic. It's, it's hammers cocked back. He has a bunch of ammunition. I mean, who uses Rugers and Mausers? Well, this guy obviously does. And he seems to do the same thing. He goes into the police station until the arrest. And he confesses to the crimes of killing the store owner. But then he changes his mind and his defense becomes that he did in fact shoot Mr. Namoff. But he did not do it to rob him. He said he shot him because he was hypervigilant on the account that he was in fear for his life of the Aryan Brotherhood, which is a prison gang. And that they wanted him dead. They had a contract out for him. So this guy's fully loaded. He's got guns because he thinks they're coming after him. So during his trial, he brings a former member of the Aryan Brotherhood to testify that they actually wanted him dead. And then he also calls his witnesses people from the California Department of Corrections 
to verify that they moved him to different states, to Kansas, for protection from this particular prison gang. Kind of, he's kind of almost giving the excuse that he went to this place and he, you know, he was hyper vigilant. This guy attacked him. He didn't know that this guy wasn't a member of the gang, so he shoots him. That's his defense, and he believes it's going to save him from the death penalty. Eh, the jury didn't buy it. They gave his dad death penalty again. Right. So eventually this guy becomes like kind of hyper-focused, almost monomaniacal about wanting to be executed. So it's, I don't get how these two philosophies of his kind of fit together. Exactly. It doesn't fit together. So... Yeah, he gets a death penalty, and right away, he, he wants to waive his appeal, which, which that means is he tells the court, I do not want an appeal, and I'm a you know, sound mind. I want to proceed for death penalty. However, it is denied. The court says, no, 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 no. You are required to go through a direct appeal. Direct appeal is a direct appeal to the California Supreme Court, which all death row inmates or prisoners get. So he wants nothing to do with his defense. He doesn't speak to his lawyers, but they file it on his behalf regardless. And sure enough, as I said, he's the luckiest guy in the world or the unluckiest guy in the world. The Supreme Court of California reverses the conviction. So his conviction and his sentence are thrown out on the grounds that his lawyer during, during the trial did not consult or consent to a uh, guilty plea, which he wanted. He wanted a guilty plea. The lawyers tried to convince him and they went ahead with a defense. So this happens, and since it's the California Supreme Court, there's no appeal from that. He goes back to San Francisco or the county he was in, and he's retried again for the same murder. And guess what? The jury gives him the death penalty again, a third time. So this guy, uh, I mean, I don't know what else. I mean, this guy is, it's incredible that they, they first of all, that they reverse on these issues. But second of all, that as soon as he gets back on death row, he immediately tries to waive his appeal again. He doesn't want anything to do with an appeal. He wants to proceed with death. Yeah, the... So is he crazy? I don't know. Um, the media picked up on it. And they, I guess they labeled him, you know, the prisoner who wants to die. Or It's a pretty pretty convenient story, um, kind of for a little news segment. His, his um, philosophy on this, I don't know if he came up with it. I'm thinking he did, because I've never heard of it, was I think what you touched on, which is that his appeal process, which is automatic, make sure they got it right, um, that that constitutes being tried twice for the same crime. Which it's not, it's an appeal. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, it's ludicrous. But that was his position. But he committed to this position, like, stronger than most people commit to anything, didn't he? I mean, he was, like, really into this idea. Yeah, no, he, that this was his position. He felt it was double jeopardy that the state of California was trying him a second time for the second crime, for the same crime, and as against the Constitution. And he was right. It is against the Constitution to try someone twice with the same crime. However, that's not what was going on with him. Now, and just for, for legal purposes, the state of California or a law enforcement agency, a prosecution at the state level, can prosecute you for a crime. Now, even if they lose that case, you can be tried civilly for the same crime and be found guilty, then that's not devil jeopardy. A person can also be tried for the same crime under federal statutes, and that would not be double jeopardy. So his position was completely off, but he stuck to it. I mean, he fought to the end, and he felt in his mind that his death would bring light to this issue, and that many people then would be let off death row because of his sacrifice. Again, I don't know how sound that well, that logic is, but in my opinion, it was completely off. Yeah, 
and his point was, I couldn't get too many details, but the, the prison was conditions were inhumane or and that it should be his right to die. I don't get why he didn't just commit suicide now that I think about it. Well, yeah, see, and that's, that's something that I think about as well. Like, you know, you have, we've had two guys now. We've, we've gone through, what is it, seven or eight executions here. And two of them have been voluntary. You have Mason uh, and you have now Massey that both volunteered to be executed. You know, I'm, I'm a practical guy, and I'm sure some people can appreciate being practical about things. You don't have to go through all this drama of death penalties and gas and last meals and appeals and people asking you questions, being in the paper, if you want to die. If you really feel strongly about it, and I'm not advocating that people should do this, but in essence, these guys are committing suicide. That, that's what it is. You want to die? You, you know, God didn't call your number or you didn't trip and fall and bust your head open. And you are volunteering to go die at a from a state-sanctioned, whatever, execution. That's that's a suicide. So why not do it yourself? Why go through all this legal mumbo-jumbo? Hey, they give you a death penalty, you don't agree with it? Hey, you know what? Buy a rope that works and hang yourself. I mean, I know it sounds kind of cruel, but at this point, why go through all this stuff? I mean, is there some kind of higher, you know, higher purpose in this? I don't know. Are they somehow trying to get attention? You know, I, I really don't know. But again, this guy is dead set on dying. Why have the state to it? Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing based on his personality, he's just one of those guys that uh, wants to argue everything and is, is obviously not an agreeable person. I mean, he's a career criminal for the most part. Um, but it also says that he, he assisted, you know, he became pretty familiar with the law. I don't know, you know, what that means or like you said, he was pretty, pretty smart guy on some levels. So, you know, maybe it made him feel important to help other people, uh, on death row understand, uh, their, their cases. Um, you know, he would give legal advice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of guys in prison that study law. Unfortunately, they have what I consider shot, shot glass mentality. And what that means is that you really can find anything in the law that's going to agree with the position if you look hard enough. Um, and these guys have this narrowed viewpoint. It's almost like they have blinders on. They're looking for a particular issue. Forget all the law that surrounds the issue, they only look for the one point that they're looking for and they argue that particular point. Well, it doesn't work like that in the real world, but they're convinced. And I think it's because they're, they're, they're unstable. And as I said, this guy was diagnosed by a prison psychologist. It wasn't something he paid. It was CDCR's own guy. And they said he was in a, he had acute schizophrenic reactions to things. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. That sounds like he's pretty paranoid about things. Um, so, you know, this position he took, many people opposed it. You have 60 seconds remaining. Well, they're just not going to let me talk, are they? <laughs> so let me pick that up where I left off. But, um, yeah, his position brought a lot of um, attention to him because people that opposed the death penalty um, took a very hard line to that. So it gave him a lot more attention, of course. So let me touch on that point when I come back. Hey, Matt. Obviously, um, people opposed to the death penalty are not going to be down with this guy's life mission of waiving uh, the appeal process. Yeah, their position was that the state of California was assisting him in suicide. So... By him taking that position, he feels that he has to respond in writing. So his response to that is, he writes an article in the San Francisco Chronicle where he stated, it is preposterous to call his death 
an act of suicide. He went on to prove his point by stating that he did not arrest himself or that he did not convict himself. He also didn't sentence himself to death. He also is not the person who placed him on death row. That was the judge. So his theory, or at least his position was that he's not committed suicide because because he didn't do all these things. It was somebody else that did it to him. I guess that, I guess what it comes down to is he's saying that basically he has no choice, that a gun was put to his head, the trigger was cocked back, someone was holding his finger, and basically because the conditions on death row were so bad, the violence, the the atmosphere, you know, the, the cockroaches, the rats, just the bad environment, that they basically forced him to pull the trigger. Right. And is that what it was that he was upset about? Was it was it being incarcerated in general or was it the conditions at San Quentin? Or do you even know? Yeah, from what I remember, it was the conditions here. It was the the length of time that appeals take now. It could be I mean all the appeals took take more than 20 years, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, so and that's part of the whole deal. If they give someone a death penalty, he felt it should be carried out and everything should be a, a shorter length. His position was that the conditions of small cells, the people here, the violence, all those things were forcing his hand. And I mean, my position that is, yeah, he's correct. All those things happen here. That's what happens when you put 700 plus killers all together. There's going to be a bit of violence. Yeah. Um, it's really strange. I mean, because he's. Was he a loner? Because it, it seems as though yeah. that he was a loner, and yet he doesn't feel that he has the independence uh, to end his own life. He's He kind of has to appeal to the authorities. Which, you know, I don't know if he thought it was going to work, but I see a contradiction there. There's a huge contradiction in what he was doing. As I stated before, he could have killed himself if he really felt strong about it. And all those people who are right now, you know, gasping about suicide, I'm not advocating people should commit suicide. And if someone does have those feelings, they should contact a suicide hotline and speak to someone who can counsel them. This is a separate situation. This is a different situation. So please stop with the gasps because we're talking about a guy who was convicted, sentenced to death, and he's using the death penalty as a way to bring attention to himself. So our position, or at least my position, I don't know what Matt's is on this particular issue, is that on this issue right here, he could have gotten a rope and killed himself if he really wanted to instead of bringing in the entire public and bringing all these things to the courts, lawyers, and spending millions of taxpayer dollars on this issue. I mean, that's my position. Again, what's yours, man? Well, I, I don't think that you should be able to tell the state, you know, what day to execute you. Seems like something a crazy person would do, and that would raise all kinds of legal issues. Um. I also, I do understand his perspective, but isn't he also claiming that his lawyers entered the wrong plea for him? And isn't that, wouldn't that be kind of hard to occur without your consent? Well, well yes, but in California, it happens all the time. A lawyer doesn't consult his client does things not supposed to do and therefore he's, he's rendered ineffective because he did not accomplish the the goals of the defendants for example you know a person needs all these people investigated because they can place him at a different place in the event and the lawyer doesn't do it the state of california if they review that appeal and that is brought forward they will then rule that he was ineffective in this particular case the court the supreme court of california ruled that his trial counsel 
because they were negligent or did not um, really follow his instructions. So they, uh, the, the court ruled, and in his particular case, that because his attorneys during the trial did not consent to his guilty plea, that was reversible error. But remember, we had, we're dealing with a court when, he, when this reversal came down. Um, it was called the, the Bird Court under Chief Justice Rose Bird. And that court was actually, which has never happened before, was taken out of their position because they were reversing every case for any reason they, they found fit. They weren't, according to the naysayers, they were not following the rule of law. That court was dead set against the death penalty, so they reversed just about every single case that came in front of them. And that that's, uh, in California history, it's the first time it's ever happened that that particular court was basically just taken out, was replaced because of those things. And the big issue with them was the death penalty. Yeah, I, I, I can see his point, I guess, but I, I think that there's obvious reasons for an appeal process. I mean, should it be his right if he's of sound mind to turn down the appeal? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, of course. I think so. I mean, but because the way the law was written, you have an automatic appeal. They deny his right to, to waive it. But again, we're in that position where why go to the courts? If he's anti-establishment, he's anti-authority, why go to the freaking state? If you really want to end this, hey, grab a rope, Jack. Right? Yeah, or threaten the appellate judges. That might work, too. Yeah, I mean, there's a, I mean look, there's a lot of things he could have done to avoid all this stuff. And, I mean, we're, we're, we're arguing a point after the fact. But the truth is, all the stuff that he did, um, I, I get it. He was convinced of this particular position, which was crazy to begin with. But if he chose to die, there are easier ways to do it. That's all I'm saying of this. And, um, of course, the evening where they took him, there was no, you know, we even had people outside the gates, people against the death penalty, um, arguing that he was not of sound mind, that he was attempting suicide. Their position was the state of California was assisting him in, uh, an illegal suicide. Um, so therefore, they were out there protesting. But he went to, you know, he had his last meal. He spoke to a spiritual advisor. And he went into the gas chamber, no frost, no dust. He sat down, he laid down, they injected him. And by 1220 that night, he was gone. Yeah. And that was two vanilla milkshakes, extra crispy french fries, extra crispy fried oysters, and soft drinks. I guess you're going to die anyway, so who wow. cares? Yeah. That's what he had for, for his last meal? Yeah, I think the fried oysters might be kind of a regional thing where he's from originally. Wow. Yo, uh, yeah, I never would have guessed that, but wow, that's, that's a pretty good meal right there, right? Come on. Shakes. And, well, it's just, I mean, uh, it's really bizarre I mean, that he's kind of passive at the end. I mean, if I picture someone that is so anti-establishment like this. I expect him to be throwing fists, you know, tearing the place up, hooting, hollering, whatever it is. Uh, it's just so hard to understand this guy's dichotomy. But I guess uh, no one ever has either. No, because that's not his personality. During his uh, time in prison, they paroled him because he was the, the model prisoner. He did what he was told. He did his job. He went home from his job. It was, he didn't get involved in anything. He was just a pretty straight-laced guy, which which brings a huge question mark to my mind as to why the Aryan Brotherhood would be after this guy. This guy is not a threat to these guys. He's not He's not a drug user. He's not, a, he's not into, you know, dealing. He's not, he's not a gambler. None of the big five that Prison gangs get involved with people, and that's because they owe money or because they use 
drugs or because they're involved in some type of criminal activity because the person walls, he catches her attention, and they decide to, you know, come to him because he owes money. None of those things exist with this guy. So I can't see why they would be after this guy unless, well, you know, someone's keeping it a secret or they never uh, release the reasons. From a person who's been in prison every 40 years, the only thing I can think of is that he saw something, he told on them to get it to garner favor from the authorities. They found out and they put a hit on him. And then, the, of course, how does CDCR respond to that? They put him on a, a transfer to another state. Let me tell you something. In the 70s, the state of California does not transfer anybody anywhere unless he is a high end informant that's going to give something and he's worth enough for them to keep safe because back in those days there was no protective custody you went to the yard and someone wanted to kill you you fought or you died so i don't understand this but it seems that something's going on here that no one knows about he obviously never divulged it and neither has the authorities yeah and he could have left the area uh when he was free and you know not engaged in these pretty stupid crimes as far as the risk goes i mean back then was it all that difficult to hold up a gas station and get away with it without shooting people i don't i don't know no well i, I think it has a lot to do with the way he looked too remember he's a real small guy and he's not very threatening looking i mean like i described you know leave it to beaver's uncle that's this guy right here so this guy pulls a gun on you and tells you give me your money you're a hard-working individual you own a lick store that money could be the difference between paying your rent and paying your kids tuition whatever it may be and you see this clown leaving the liquor store if it's me i'm gonna take a swing at him so maybe that's what these victims did but he was quick to draw and he just shot him immediately he seems to have that's his mo he just shoots ask any questions he shot that woman in front of her house trying to rob her because she didn't do exactly what he told him and he shoots this guy the same way he shot the gun he shot the gun in the hotel room the same way so i think it has to do with the statue that people think he's not as threatening as he looks and obviously he is very deadly all right man yeah so as we said i think he was executed in march of 2001 and his, uh, I guess his mission in life for the last better part of his life, which was this pioneering legal philosophy that he was uh, working on, is lost on both of us, more or less. So, I don't know. Maybe he was way ahead of his time. Maybe it'll make sense uh, 100 years from now. Uh, I have no idea. Yeah, you know what they say about genius. Sometimes you're working way ahead of your time, but I, I'm going to stick to the position that this guy was just, he was worked beyond repair, and unfortunately, um, it cost a lot of people their lives, and ultimately it cost him his life as well. Although, as you and I agree, he could have done it in a way where it wouldn't have cost that much money. But yeah. So yeah, so that, that's, that's our episode with... Uh, Robert Lee Massey, a.k.a. Um, Leave it to Beaver's uncle. And uh, next episode that we have coming up next week will be on a guy named Stephen Anderson. So that's all I'm going to tell you about this guy. And, um, well, his photo says it all, right? It should be interesting. The, his mugshot is bizarre, and so I'm curious to hear about what he did to land himself there. So uh, we will have a new episode next Sunday. And until then, I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm Willie Manoguera. And this has been the Death Row Diaries. <laughs>